hello, this is Notes from the Back Row, a podcast like no other, different themes, rotating hosts, and so much more. So strap in for a veritable cinematic Coney Island of the mind. Hello and welcome to another episode of Notes from the Back Row. As always, you can find more essays, film writing, and podcasts over at back-row.com. And please do not forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and more at Back Row Cineblog. You can also go to Patreon. It's linked on the website. And you can donate to get episodes of the podcast early. You can get lots of exclusive monthly content there, whether it's a film review or essay or a special episode of the podcast there's stuff there you can't get anywhere else so check out our patreon as well at backdashroad.com today i'm incredibly excited to introduce our topic of discussion this is technically an episode of hoser horror but it's a bit different than the ones we've done in the past if you're the kind of person who browses the digital and physical pages of canuxploitation.com or bleeding skull your eyes and ears may perk up when you hear the name emeritus productions in the 1980s this hamilton-based company churned out over 30 shot on video cheapies for the television station chch and overseas home video markets emeritus was the brainchild of a one lionel schenken who gave young industry up-and-comers the chance to write and direct low-budget movies using local talent and for years these films have existed only on vhs tapes eventually rescued from thrift stores by vhs collectors and ultimately digitized available for download if you know the right places to look it's through these digitized copies and an absolute coincidence that i was able to sit down and chat with alan levine a man who directed two emeritus films himself before going on to have a long and illustrious career in television and film production thanks to his daughter sid who posted a youtube comment on an upload of alan's emeritus film the chronicle of 1812 not only was i able to chat with them about that film their second emeritus directorial effort the edge aka doomsday plot and much more but alan also got the chance to revisit these two films they had previously believed had been lost forever for more information about emeritus films you can check out the article every six minutes the story of emeritus on cutexploitation.com and of course thank you again to sid and alan for spending the morning chatting with me about their career and films and a whole lot more i will stop blabbing now i hope you enjoy it i was truly thankful to have this opportunity to have this discussion i think the topic of emeritus is so interesting and not often covered there's still a ton of information about these films and about these productions to learn so i was excited to do just that so hopefully you enjoy listening to this discussion as much as i had having it thank you so much for doing this and helping set this up and i'm truly excited and and thankful for the opportunity to chat well, with you. very lovely to have this opportunity <clears throat> i have a million things to tell you but where would you like to start 
So how about we just start at the beginning? Do, do you have any sort of like formative memories around movies, like early movies that you saw or, or when you were younger, did you have like a particular path to being interested in film? Um, gosh, it always. Yeah. Just always from the very beginning. And I also wanted to be a part of the storytelling process uh, as well from the, I think, you know, um, I've always been in, uh, interested in adventure, adventure narrative, what mm -hmm. I refer to. Uh, so I read a lot of comic books, <laughs> and uh, and I saw a lot of science fiction movies, and I loved all of them. So uh, that really informed a lot of the kind of storytelling that I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Did you like go to the movies often? Not only did I, but my my big brother took me to a lot of uh, movies back in the 60s. And we saw, he took me to see 2001 <laughs> in Cinerama. <laughs> nice. At Glendale Cinema. And it was, yeah, it was a very big deal. And I was, I was 11. And, uh, and <laughs> it, yeah, it was a, it was a very big deal to me. And I'm still grateful to him for schlepping me there. But uh, he said, I remember we were standing on the lawn having gotten home and still very impressed. And remember, this was in Cinerama. It was the IMAX of its day, and yeah. we had good seats, yeah. if you know what I'm trying to say. And uh, not every movie was in Cinerama. And uh, he said, um, you know how old you're going to be in 2001? You're going to be 44. <laughs> it was like unbelievably ancient. <laughs> wow. Yeah, 2001. Oh, Way off in the future. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was certainly very inspired that's for sure a lot of the Harryhausen stuff like um Ray Harryhausen's Atlantis yeah yeah and uh but my favorite of course was uh that I want Sid to watch with me uh fairly soon my very favorite of his was um the time machine mm -hmm. with uh with Rod Taylor yeah <laughs> have you seen it I actually have not seen that one. Oh, it's the best yeah if you liked Atlantis you're gonna love the time machine it's it's really it's just terrific and the the morlocks the monsters all done for super cheap super cheap budget just fantastic you 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 owe it to yourself so sid we gotta make a <laughs> note of, of seeing that and this is done not only for but with a real live movie star and very involving which mm -hmm. is a really important element very involving very convincing romance yeah everything did seeing something that you could kind of tell was you know put together with a lot of heart and maybe a lower budget was was that something that inspired you at the time um uh yes and no um i got um because the the environment that i was in where i i got to uh, you, you're familiar with the emeritus yes uh, uh series of so that gave me an opportunity to work even though i didn't really have the talent or ability but that's another mm -hmm. separate topic um but there was a bunch of us that uh, had this opportunity to make these emeritus uh, uh, um, movies, quote unquote, on the clear understanding that we would have virtually no money to work with <laughs> and no infrastructure to work with. And our mentor, the owner, uh, Lionel Schenken, uh, 
who passed away in, in 2008, uh, said uh, famously, oh, well, I'll give you just enough rope to hang yourself with. <laughs> and um, so there were, we had no assistant directors, and that had everything to do with the market for zero-budget movies back in the 1980s, which, which no longer exists. Mm-hmm. But uh, Lionel said, look, we've got 10 bucks to do this. So no, no AD department, no art department, no no nothing <laughs> you just went off and you you grabbed some props and sets and you made it up as you went along sorry i'm sorry i interrupted you no it's okay like just before we get into the emeritus stuff which i'm honestly so excited to discuss was there a point before you you did the directing for emeritus where you kind of realized like movies are, are something that i could be doing you know, as a career, because I did notice that you you majored in theater arts and history at University of Guelph. So did like that kind of help you transition like you're doing theater like arts and then you start to think, OK, there's movie stuff going on over here. That's a, a, a great question. And it's just reaching back that far. It's, mm-hmm. it's really hard to remember the exact decision, but it was approximately uh, in, in in high school and at the beginning of university. I really wanted to be an actor. And famously, I tell the story at at parties that goes like this. Every single thing, every acting performance I did, it came out me sounding like Groucho Marx. <laughs> and the punchline is, is that I replied by saying, yeah, what's your point? <laughs> so on the clear understanding that not every single performance should be sounding and looking like Groucho Marx, yeah. I, I, uh, I, I morphed into uh, doing uh, other elements of uh, entertainment. But when I tried to get a job at and got a job at at uh, Visual Productions, which produced the Emeritus series of, of product, yeah. um, what they offered me was uh, not acting, although I got to do a little bit of acting for them, not very much, just a bit. But uh, what it was about was a long-term job in management in, uh, and uh, with a small M because there wasn't a very big team. <laughs> but I said yes because it was showbiz. The first job I had was monitoring sound for a entertainment news uh, package, sort of like ET except, except much, much smaller. So I just said yes, yeah, sure, I'll do it. You're going to pay me in money? Yeah. Hell yes. Yeah. And then <laughs> from there, how did the emeritus, like, the directing get started? Well, uh, Lionel was always uh, looking around, uh, literally around the world. There were various conventions in the United States and L.A. and around the world for all kinds of different levels of product, for television, for movies, for everything. And in those days, interesting story, you had to um, – you had to – you had the opportunity, if you want to call it an opportunity, to make one sale at a time for one territory at a time, which is almost unheard of today. <laughs> but you would meet representatives for different media, whether it was television or whether it was film, almost on a country-by-country basis. And in certain countries, such as France and, and Britain and the United, and especially the United States, there's different regions within those countries. And you would be in for different media. And you would have to make your deal at the conventions, one media at a time, and then scrape together piles of contracts, just and bring them all back and somehow get them financed, somehow hope that those um, uh, purchasers would, would pay up at the end because you're dealing with Eastern Europe, is the money ever going to come? And then it would be incumbent on you, and in this case, Lionel, to shoot those movies or shoot <laughs> 
TV series. And so it was your neck that was on the line. You had to do that for as small an amount of money as humanly possible for a bunch of different reasons. You didn't know if the customer was going to pay and you didn't know if you were going to be able to translate Raz Bucknicks into Canadian dollars ever. That was going to, so it was a high wire act for Lionel. So I really respect what he did. And he would go off to these conventions two or three times a year. And they were all very challenging and difficult. And so he'd come back and say, all right, so we've got this opportunity. We've got contracts to do a product for X, Y, and Z different countries around the world, that most of which, many of which you've never heard of. And this is what the product has to look like. And this is how much money you've got. So Alan, if you want to direct, this is your big chance. All you have to do is Bring it in on time and on budget. Yeah, You don't have very much time and you don't have very much budget. So off you go. And that was that was my way. I said, yeah, sure. Yeah, I'll take that. Yeah. Was there and, any uh, direction of, of like, you know, so you're, the first movie that you directed, uh, The Chronicle of 1812, a.k.a. The King's Regiment, um, was there any like directions, you know, that, that is a rare, um, period piece for Emeritus Productions. So was there direction around, yeah. like it needs to be a period piece or was it? That's a great question. That's a really good question. And the answer is no. Lionel's attitude was what, what have you guys got? It's got action and adventure and, and, uh, some element of commercial, you know, mm-hmm elements to it spies or military or anything or some kind of action i don't care yeah uh, if you dig it if you are interested in doing it let's hear about it and if you think you can pull it off for the money and the time let's let's go for it so <laughs> i had personally had an interest in the war of 1812 because i was interested in david and goliath stories and so it was the big bad united states invading upper canada as I'm sure you have some familiarity, so I wanted to, and and it had not been done. So, um, and there's a reason for that, and the reason for that is that uh, the United States of America is 50 cents of every dollar spent on entertainment and media on the planet, and they probably were not interested in a story where they were the bad guys and somebody else (laughs) was the good guys. So there had not been a lot of War of 1812 stories told up until that point. So I said, to Lionel, do you care that the Americans are the bad guys and the British are the good guys? And he said, I don't care. Just do what you want. Oh, okay. <laughs> so did you have to write that script like, here we go, like real quick? Or did you have time to kind of sit down and, and figure it out? The answer is the first, your first choice. Okay. <laughs> right. Think that I'm reaching back 50, 45 years now. Um, uh, 40 years only. Um, yeah, the good news is you get to do the movie that you want. The not as good news is we have to roll camera in three and a half weeks. <laughs> that's, that's wild. So, uh, so I was 25 years old. I didn't know any, any <laughs> different. And there was no assistant director department to organize shots or indeed a story editor to say, you know, <laughs> there's bones to this to this script that you have here but it sounds like it was being written by a 15 year old but we could fix that um there was nobody to say that either so what got filmed was pretty much the first draft of the script okay and and you're shooting on video was that something that was a little like i gotta figure this out as we go uh, there was uh, some of my colleagues uh knew how to work the video camera but hilariously we only used like one lens (laughs) <laughs> and uh, 
and uh, so there wasn't a lot of uh, there wasn't a lot of dolly shots. There wasn't mm-hmm. a lot of Steadicam. Not that Steadicam was invented, um, but uh, not a lot of crane shots. It was basically a tripod and a camera. And if you could find a cliff, and I did, yeah, you could get a you could get a high shot. You watched it. Yeah. I want to tell you, I want to stop here and say that I didn't think that I was ever going to see this movie again for the rest of my entire life. No, really. I really want to tell you, Dan, that uh, I was I had pretty much convinced myself that it um, the VHSs had ended up in a bin in the the the, the guy that bought the entire library from mm. Lionel in the early 2000s at the latest. And um, and uh, and and you know never transferred them to DVD, let alone Blu-ray. And that they were—I can't imagine how you found them, Dan. How did you find? <laughs> so you ever- there, there is a you know small but fervent uh, group of people that are are fans of the Emeritus Productions. Um, I think partially spearheaded by a guy named Paul from Canuxploitation.com. So he wrote a big piece about this was happening in Hamilton and in Canada, these, you know, low budget shot on video things. And, you know, there's VHS collectors. So people have really, yeah, people have been finding the tapes. And so I can't take any credit for actually digitizing the tape. But there are copies of most of the Emeritus movies that have been digitized um, floating around on the Internet. So I was specifically looking for some Emeritus movies. And then I just happened to, to say to myself, you know, I don't like that some of these are hard to find. You have to, like, find your way onto the right websites to download them. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to upload some of these if I if I find them and and. I thought it was really interesting that 19, uh, sorry, Chronicle of 1812, King's Regiment, was a period piece for Emeritus, that it was shot in and around, you know, Toronto and, and Hamilton, and, and that it was, um, yeah, shot on video, and that it was just an interesting thing. And so, yeah, I uploaded it to the YouTube channel, <laughs> just thinking so a couple people that awesome. know what Emeritus is will like that this is there. I couldn't imagine that it would lend, you know, that I would be able to interview you. <laughs> Well, that is due to the incredible diligence of my kid Sid, who is uh, who is our host here mm-hmm. this morning. Yes. So uh, uh, I I cannot uh, I I can't thank her enough because <laughs> because uh, I didn't think that I'd ever ever see it again. So mm-hmm. there, there it was. So, so but yeah, one camera. I I did want to say so I I did watch Chronicle of eighteen twelve, the King's Regiment, and and I would like to say to you just just personally like you know for for what you had when you were making this movie and for the you know you're saying you used one lens and kind of had to it was a one camera one camera you know you found ways to to you know lighten up the the movie here and there with some uh style i i was throughout the film surprised now and again when like there was definitely some choices being made of like how can we shoot this this way um i'll I'll speak to that a little bit again because i also watched um the edge aka doomsday plot and so Uh even in that movie i found like okay so there's a scene with a body bag and now we're shooting pov out of the body bag as it's being unzipped and i'm just thinking this is fun there's like fun moments in this that i can see you know there's creativity and how can we figure this out you know and i think that's what make these movies interesting like watching uh 1812 it's a bunch of people running around in the woods you know you know <laughs> wearing like like 
the theatrical kind of you know uh it, it almost looks like um like like war reenactment people and and it's almost like their oh, home, yeah. vid- home video footage of it but it's it's charming to me you Thank know you. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think, you know, and, and of course it's ironic because I coach people now, kids and, and have for a long time, um, on how to make movies properly. In yeah. fact, for decades and decades, and I, I don't know if you've, you know, followed up on my career between, between 1985 and now, but I've worked on a couple of other yeah. movies yeah. and, uh, and so one of the things that I tell people is that, you know, you've got to polish that script. You've got to look at, look at it very, very carefully. Uh, and, um, and when you shoot, you've got to have, uh, in, incredible amounts of coverage so that, that you can make choices in the suite. And, um, I did none of those <laughs> things. And, um, and, it, and unfortunately, it really suffers for it. So uh, when I saw it, uh, I was cringing not for one or two reasons, but for 12 or 13 or 14 <laughs> or 15 reasons. And, and it, it's sort of a shame because there were some things here and there that even I was impressed with that I that my 25-year-old brain thought up uh, all of those years ago. And, and I want to call attention particularly to the 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 scene with the raft, which um, I don't yeah. know if you remember. I can't believe that not only that we did that, but I asked people to do that and to get it done because every single thing about it was dangerous as hell. Um, and But it looks sort of good. Uh, Definitely. But, uh, really wrong and uh, and dangerous. And, and please, kids, do not do not try this. It's all <laughs> bad. But... Um, yeah. Speaking yeah, so. speaking of that, so in the Edge, aka Doomsday plot, which is like a thriller, and you know, a, a, yeah. all, similarly ambitious for the Emeritus Productions, in that like it it, it it's it takes place in Moscow. There's a scene on a plane. You know, we go to Ontario Place for the finale. Um, th- there's some scenes in that movie, like there's there's an alleyway shootout with like gunshots on the street in in what I read would was the annex, but it's playing Moscow, I think. But um, the annex plays Moscow. Yeah, w- was that hard to execute or organize? What was like shooting a scene like that where you yeah, have people? Yeah, I took a lot of grief because for the one shot we had a we actually had a dolly as the guy runs by the camera. There's a dolly shot there, and Lionel raised hell because how dare I. <laughs> Uh, rent a dolly for a shot it was absolutely the end of the universe and also the channel 11 guys who shot it uh took all they'd never worked on a rarely worked on a dolly before so although they were keen to do the shot it took some time to set it all up um but uh, overall uh it's far uh, also the the war of 1812 show far too much dialogue so kids, when you're making a movie, it's called a movie because it's supposed to move. So <laughs> the dialogue informs the action. That's why we, uh, that's what the medium is all about. So far less talking and uh, a lesson to be learned. Um, <laughs> and and the edge really suffered for that blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I just wanted to say, shut up. <laughs> anyway. Um, and there was a lot of that in the War of 1812 show. I was gratified that there uh, there was as much action 
was in it and uh as there was but um i i did read on the exploitation article about emeritus that um there's a quote there about Schenken boasting that he had like a, a formula for his movies and that no scene was allowed to be longer than two minutes and their emeritus films got to have an action scene every six or seven minutes was that ever like actually you know told to you <laughs> i wish to, i wish to heck that it had been enforced <laughs> the problem was is that and it's a serious problem is that is that filmmaking is a collaborative business and if you're an auteur and there's and as my big brother once told me there's 11 of them on the planet <laughs> uh you can write a really good script and shoot it without anybody checking up on you but for the rest of the uh hundred thousand movie makers around the world you need to talk to you you need to run your script by other people you need to talk it through you need to talk to the editor talk to the dp and you have to say what do you think um and maybe it can be shorter maybe it can be punchier uh lionel's instinct was quite correct uh a little bit of talking a little bit of setup there was not only was there was it not followed up on, but there was nobody to follow up on it. Um, I wish if I could go back in time, I could look at all of those scripts and I could say the bones of an interesting story is here on most of these, not all, but most of these scripts that you emeritus want to do. First thing that we're going to do is rewrite the dialogue. And the first thing about the rewrite of the dialogue is we're going to cut 35% of it, maybe a little more. <laughs> Then we're going to rewrite the dialogue as well, literally, because nobody talks like this. But we can keep a lot of what the ideas were about if we refine them a little bit, and uh, or a lot, and uh, and stick with this idea that Lionel had about setup, 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 action, 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 and maybe budget for better, better stunt people and. Uh, <laughs> action uh, equipment none of which we had none of which we planned um so uh his uh, basic instincts were of course correct but uh no no one of the things about dialogue is it's free so you can come back at the end of the day and say good news we're on budget and we're on schedule bad news is it's kind of boring characters saying boring lines <laughs> blah 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 so yeah I I did read also that you know when when you read a lot about Emeritus you you read that a lot of the actors and and cast and crew and stuff were you know from Hamilton like theater people was that true in, around like the talent pool was it like a lot of the same people showing up in these movies and well first of all it 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 was because Lionel was if you did if you tried hard and you did a fairly good job Lionel was marvelously loyal to you and as a lot of young people we needed a paycheck and he was fabulous that way he had a very gruff exterior and he had a, absolutely a marshmallow for a heart he was uh, <laughs> he tried to pretend that he wasn't the a wonderful human being but he actually was and um and one of the things that he was incredibly loyal and one of the things is that he would he would uh give people uh gigs time after time and he called it niagara repertory company that was the precursor to emeritus mm. and um but uh the 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 money a lot a lot of the the way that uh, the visual productions was structured was uh channel 11 chch tv was canada's super channel at that time it was very interesting it was long before city tv and long before the idea of super channels but 
uh, Channel 11 was not associated with the network, and it made a lot of its own programming, and it got along very well, and it, frankly, and it did very well. It profited quite well through the late 1950s and straight through the 60s and, and uh, into the 70s, uh, and it was odd, and one of the many programs it came up with by itself was Tiny Talent Time, and I don't know if you've ever heard of that in your entire life. No. But it was a huge, big show. They did lots of other things too. Well, anyway, Lionel's whole company was a bit of a production entity that was associated with C. In other words, he got a lot of his money, not all, but he got a chunk of his money from Channel 11. So we used the facilities at Channel 11. We used um, uh, technicians from Channel 11. We used uh, some talent that was uh, available in Hamilton. By coincidence, I am from Hamilton. Mm-hmm. I'm a Cats fan and have been my whole life. I just live in Toronto. Um, so that was a coincidence, but I knew my way around Hamilton, that was for sure. But there was lots of Toronto kids who were, the, the office was located in Toronto. I do remember working for Lionel that we drove back and forth from Hamilton all the time. Just and part of my job was driving the tech van. And I did that back and forth on the garden there <laughs> two or three times a week. I was very used to that. Did, speaking of CHCH, did did you know that some of these movies, when you were making them, were going to be potentially cut into like half hour, 20, 22 minute chunks and shown like over the course of different nights? Because I did also read that uh, that was another thing about Emeritus was th- these movies were, were, you know, made to be presented as, oh, we have an hour and a half to fill or two hours to fill, or maybe it's we're going to break them out into chunks. It wasn't, it wasn't just, it's a good question, and uh, the answer is yes, but it wasn't just for Channel 11. At that time, uh, all around the world, the different territories and different media, different television companies, everywhere, different broadcasters, everywhere, literally all around the planet, had different requirements. And if you had content, making content was a slightly bigger deal than it is today. That's not true. Making content was an enormously bigger deal than it is today. Um, And if you had the content, you could sell it. You could either repackage it yourself for your own needs, or you could sell it to other broadcasters who would cut it up for their needs, and all and and the right to do that would be caught would be covered in the contract. So Channel Eleven did that. Whether you took a movie and chopped it up into three or four nights, that would be the least of it. You could there was all kinds of different. Lionel had uh, musical comedy stuff. He had singing and dancing stuff. He had all kinds of different content that would all be chopped up and packaged the way that the broadcaster required it on the given day all around the world many different not just channel 11 yeah so uh, no surprises okay. so yeah we were aware of that up front we also were completely aware and were completely comfortable with the idea that the repackaging could happen at the very last minute so you'd be making something and be repackaged for the the needs of the of the broadcaster could change a week later we did not care we were all in our early 20s, not even in our late 20s, and we were having an opportunity to work. And we had, I have to tell you, we did have an awful lot of fun. <laughs> we, we truly did. Awesome. I, so I do want to talk a little bit more about some of your your 
um, your the, the longevity of your career and some of the more recent stuff. But before I get to that, I wanted to bring up. So I did notice. Um, speaking of of acting and wanting to be an actor, um, I noticed a few small credits in in films that I have seen. So I saw that you played a cab driver in a movie called A Whisper to a Scream. You were credited in Graveyard Shift, and I also noticed a voice credit in a movie that I've seen called City on Fire. Is there anything you could tell me about any of this stuff? This period of like. Are these kind of like friends were making movies and I was able to help out in a certain way kind of thing? Yes, <laughs> literally. Yes, yeah. just how it happened. And, and oh, geez, I, I, I don't know if you've seen it, but I want to give you a movie to find and watch from, from start to finish. And uh, it is called Skull, A Night of Terror. Oh, I, so I I've, have not seen that movie, but I know the, I know the cover you well. You must. You you simply must find it and you and you you must watch it and if it's I can't tell you about and uh, and if you're I can't advise for copyright reasons I cannot advise you what to <laughs> do with it if if somebody uploads it onto the internet mm-hmm. uh, it's none of my business yeah uh, but anyhow way cool and of all the movies that we're talking about it was these ultra low budget action movies of which when I was in my 20s, I made a goddamn career out of. Um, I would say that that's in, in early Jerry Chikoridi and all the rest of that. This one's the best. This one's the biggest. This one has the most stuff in it. And heaven knows it's got the most stories. Mm. There were, I stole a truck. And you should say, well, why on earth did you steal a truck, Alan? And I will answer that, but it's a whole podcast. <laughs> so it's that big a story, but the, uh, it's uh, Skull and Night of Terror, and it's got a fabulous explosion at the end, yeah. which you really yeah. must see. Two have the two hundred pounds of dynamite and five large garbage bags of gasoline. I'll say that again. <laughs> 200 pounds of dynamite and five large garbage bags filled with gasoline. Oh, my God. Ignited at once, actually in a choreographed way. And you five cameras, five (laughs) cameras going. You simply must see this. And one of the reasons that it's important for you to see it is that going forward, you will rarely see its like again. Hmm. Explosions going forward in this day of, of the 21st century will either be a combination of CGI or very, very controlled explosive devices done on a miniature miniature scale. Hmm. Be very rare, if ever, you will see a freaking explosion that's as real as this freaking explosion was at the end of Skull of Night of Terror. And the reason is because it's unbelievably dangerous. <laughs> it's dangerous as hell. And... And uh, standing there, I was the first AD as well as the the co-producer because it was one of these, but a great movie. You just got to see it. And um, so one small story about that, that moment when when we had had the local police and we had the local fire department. We were in a farmer's field. The house, which I'll tell you about the house at a different time, but the house was rigged with all of these explosives. It was 5 o'clock in the morning for a bunch of different reasons. Uh, the uh, explosives team had been working on it since 11 a.m. the previous day. Five people had been worked, started at 11 o'clock in the morning, and they were ready at 5 a.m. without really taking a break. I was in charge of saying three, two, one, go. Uh, the head <laughs> of the explosive department said, when you're ready, say explosion and don't say anything else. Only say explosion. It was rigged with wires from 
five different places. They had built themselves a bunker and the cameras were distributed around this enormous field, three or four acres, all. And I said to the camera guys, five camera guys, I said, now listen, we're gonna do it now. This is at 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> when I yell, for, there have been times over the last couple of weeks when I have asked for sound speed, when you have not answered me, and I just hope that you were rolling, when I say camera two or camera three, you damn well say speed at the top of your lungs so I can hear you because they're all far away. Because And if you don't, I'll kill you. <laughs> and one after the other, camera one, speed, camera two, speed. When all five cameras were told me speed and they were all rolling, some of them at high speed, some of them 90 frames a second, I yelled out at the top of my lungs, explosion, as loud as possible. Everybody could hear me. I have a very loud voice across a huge field. When the guy set off the explosion, it was like the hand of God reaching down from the sky. <laughs> and the explosion was that big. I've never seen anything like it before or since. And that's my first story. There's lots more <laughs> from, from uh, Skull, A Night of Terror. So have a look at it. Yeah. I, we'll I it's, yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, I, I really like the Canadian, um, you know, rural backwoods revenge movies. And that's just one that I haven't got to. But I, I remember looking at that VHS tape, you know, over the years as as a teenager, it has like a guy with a shotgun on it and the house is blowing up in the background. Um, and so it's it, a it's, famous, uh, famous Toronto rock and roller mm. named Robbie Rocks. Mm hmm. <laughs> and you can Google him. He's uh, and and another rock and roller, Paul Saunders, is the good guy. One of the good guys, killed horribly. <laughs> and um, and uh, so uh, two local Toronto rock and rollers uh, had featured parts, and they go back. The two of them go back years and years, and have been in the theater scene. Yeah. Very interesting people, Paul Saunders and Robbie Rocks. Fascinating people. Yeah, Robbie and Rocks was in another Green. movie, The Dark, I believe. Um, there's another Canadian. I think it's a monster movie that that Robbie Rocks was in. But yeah, that uh, I believe the production manager was Alan Levine. <laughs> oh yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And there was a and there was a monster in that kind of a lame monster, but but uh, monster nevertheless. And uh, we <laughs> had a lot of fun. And the art director, very interesting fellow named Nick White, Nicholas White, um, did a heck of a job. Built a tunnel for the monster to crawl through in a mm -hmm. studio made out of lots of paper mache. Anyway, anyway. Yeah, I watched that movie recently. Yeah, it's a fun one. Nev Campbell. Mm hmm. Yeah. A young Nev Campbell. Yeah. <laughs> so um your career path features a lot of line production production work um again uh i, th I think i was pronouncing it jerry ciceritti but you said it was uh, chickeritti so the main main uh directors on the tv show Shit's creek yes and all of those awards and very notable for um creating canada's first nc-17 film paris france which you also worked on a bit right which i also worked on yeah um, and uh and he also um he also jerry chagridi also directed a wonderful mini series about pierre trudeau uh that was just uh fantastically well done and um and very uh very involving and um so this was uh 
you know, 20 odd years ago or whatever, but a fantastic and starring Colm Fior, a fabulous Canadian actor as Pierre Trudeau and really worth a watch. If you can find it, it's a terrific CBC production, terrific show. Cool. Um, And so you also worked a little bit with uh, Jalal Mary doing uh, the action film Back in Action, which is kind of like a VHS staple for me as well which I was excited to see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, and uh, I got to meet uh, Roddy Piper, mm-hmm. who was the nicest guy in the entire world. He was uh, uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper. Yeah. And um, so that was a lot of fun. And we had some good, uh, good gun stuff in that and some good locations in mm-hmm. that, if I... I remember it was, uh, but he was, uh, but Roddy Piper treated uh, everybody. Uh, he was such a gentleman. I would love to, this is maybe like a, a super broad question, but it, as somebody that's really fascinated by Canadian genre movies and obscure Canadian movies and stuff, something that I see over and over again is a lot of people that start in, you know, these low budget genre movies ultimately end up with these long, long, you know, illustrious careers with television production and like documentaries and lots of different things. So is there any, like, like Jerry, Jerry Chikoridi, you know, started with things like a van, a low budget vampire movie, and then, you know, is now doing Shit's Creek or you, you know, doing these emeritus films. And then you're also now line producing and production management on something like Baroness Von Sketch Show, which is an amazing show. And, and so is there anything about like the, the career path of Canadian, you know, um, talent that you see this happening? Or is that just where, you know, a lot of work in Canada is with like television and, and series work and stuff? Well, remember, everybody's looking for the next paycheck. So you're you're in Canada. Your net is a little wider than if you're in L.A. You're looking at a, maybe you're looking at a more specific career path um, because if you're into network television, there's more network television, and um, and if the the producer likes you and you're whether you're a grip or anything else, then he's got something for you on his next show. And Los Angeles is just cranking out just massive amounts of content and always has for for a hundred years, a hundred years. And whereas in Canada, it was like this particular sector is there's a, an opportunity in television this week and uh, uh, this, there's an opportunity in series, there's an opportunity in miniseries, there's an opportunity in Canadian feature film, there's an opportunity in uh, an American movie that's blowing into town and uh, needs management. So it's a little bit, the way that I've seen it over the years, it's a little bit more of a patchwork. And if you're available and you have the skill set, then maybe it's an opportunity for you that you can latch on. So you're, you're climbing up sort of the ladder in uh in in different ways hmm. um Gary, of course has done a lot of writing and producing over his lifetime uh, as well as uh, as well as directing and uh, funny story he, he, he could have been a terrific actor mm-hmm. really good actor. <laughs> unlike unlike some groucho marks emulating <laughs> there were some uh in the the war of 1812 show a lot of the actors in it have gone on to uh um uh, great careers and uh, the guy that plays uh whimper the blonde kid with the cockney accent i don't know if you remember him his name is kevin may and he went on to become a very established producer television producer 
Oh, that's cool. Uh, in Toronto, yeah. Yeah, he's back in Britain now, but um, he may be back sometime. Amazing. So <laughs> that is most of my questions. Did Is there anything else that you want to talk about in terms of some of your later career? I know you worked on multiple Ninja Turtles series, which is cool and kind of like a different thing. It stood out a little bit in, in when I was looking at your IMDb. Is there anything you'd like to discuss about that stuff or there's well, I don't want to take up your time. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, uh, I could, um, I could really go on a lot about uh, skull a night of terror because it was really quite an experience. We'll yeah. put a little pin in that. Yeah. It, I would, I would absolutely be up for another time doing more detailed stories. If you want to do it, de- yeah, especially after you've seen it, you yeah. got to watch it first day. Eh? I, I would love to do that. I'll watch it and we could definitely plan a, a sequel to this. <laughs> that was graveyard shift one. That was grave graveyard shift directed by Jerry Chikoridi. Yeah. A lot of these low budget movies, um, uh, Sid, Sid reminds me of this particular story, <clears throat> which is uh, slightly emotional for me um, because it involves my mom and dad, uh, who I miss very much. Hmm. And um, so the thing is, is that when you're working on an ultra low, uh, there's a lot of crossover uh, work that everybody does. Everybody helps everybody else. So you're not sticking, if you're the prop master or the assistant director, it doesn't mean the same, it doesn't mean as much in your little lane like it would on a great big union, $10 million union movie. You're doing a movie for 200,000 bucks. Everybody's helping everybody else. It's far more loosey goosey and it needs those responsibilities and it needs to be. So anyway, the um, uh, Silvio Olivero, the, um, he was a, a, a marvelous actor, played the vampire in Graveyard Shift. He's mm-hmm. terrific. This is 1985, 1985. And, um, and my parents were very supportive uh, of everything I did. And I was very lucky to have my mom and dad. And uh, because I didn't go into law or medicine or anything else, I went into movies and they were like, okay. <laughs> um, and so we're in the middle of the night and we're shoot because it's a vampire movie. And we had, a, we found a house that was uh, not being used on a street called Briar Hill in Forest Hill Village, which is where I grew up and just a few blocks away from my folks' house. <laughs> and um, so Silvio's in a vampire, he's all white. He's covered over in white paint being a vampire and he's exhausted. We've been doing it for 12 hours and he's finally wrapped on the day. We're not wrapped on the shoot uh, that night. We've got other stuff to do, but Silvio, and I think he has to revert into a human being or something like that. So we've got all kinds of vampire makeup on him. Well, how are we gonna wash him off? And much to our surprise, their shower did not work. It was an abandoned house. So I said, well, we could just take him over to my mom and dad's at my house where I grew up. So I woke up my mother and father at midnight and I said, we got to bring the movie crew over and wash off the actor. And they were so fast. And that is my memory is my mom and dad got up. I remember my mom in a bathrobe. She put on tea. She got out cookies. Uh, Silvio got in the shower, washed off. I remember my mother and father standing there at one o'clock in the morning. Great memory. Looking at me and Jerry Chikoridi's film crew. There's like 10 of us. We're all like, ah, you know, and we've been working and we're all standing around. And Jerry Chikoridi looks at my mom and daddy and he says, 
thank you so much, Mr. and Mrs. Levine. And my mom and dad are looking at the film crew and he says, not a problem. Will you have some tea or would you like coffee and have some of these bagels? And that is my memory of mama, my mom and dad and, and Silvio coming out clean. He said, you know, the shower's a little yucky. It's got vampire makeup all over it. Let's have a bagel. <laughs> uh, I think that is a beautiful story and, and an amazing, like, Canadian story. I think that is such a, a perfect slice of, like, Canadian low-budget filmmaking where, you know, we're down the street from my parents' house. You know, everyone's going to lend a hand and, and <laughs> I... Let's watch the fire and have bagels. Exactly. Um, and, and maybe a perfect place to put a pin on this discussion for, for part one, if you'd like to, uh, again, I'll, I'll I watch. Hope, uh, I hope I, I talk to you again. Yes. So if I could give you any assignment, and you will not regret it, uh, watch uh, Skull, A Night of Terror, starring Robbie Rocks and and uh, and Paul Saunders, and written, co-written at least, by Jerry Ciccariti, <laughs> and, uh, and line produced by, by me. <laughs> I'll tell you stories that will raise the hair on your head. Oh, I am excited. I will 100% watch that. Um, and and again, thank you so much for your time today. And great to meet I you. really appreciate it. Take care. It was great to meet you, Dan. Stay in touch. Get your vaccine. Stay safe. And we'll see you soon. When it's all over, we'll have we'll have coffee. Fantastic. September, man. Okay. See you. Thanks. Yay. Take care.